Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Folklands, created, written, and presented by Justin Chubb and Tim Downey. Episode 2 Giants and Dragon Slayers. Hi. My name's Justin Chubb, and together with my friend and fellow actor-writer, Tim Downey, we're off around the UK exploring folklore in some eerie, atmospheric locations. Today's episode is all about giants and dragon slayers. So we're taking you off to a mysterious 13th century tomb in a sleepy village in Hertfordshire to speak to the delightful author Christopher Hadley, who's been writing about the legend of the local giant Piers Shonks, who allegedly once slew a dragon. Then we're going off in search of six Bronze Age Roman barrows and then to the grave of 14-foot-high giant Jack O'Legs. So, to start off, here's what the Reader's Digest Folklore, Myths and Legends of Britain has to say about Piers Shonks. Piers, the Dragon Slayer. Piers Shonks, the squire of Pelham, Hertfordshire, was a mighty hunter who was always accompanied on his expeditions by his groom and three faithful hounds. One day they cornered a terrible dragon in its lair beneath a yew tree in Great Pepsil's field. The fight was long and bloody, and Shonks himself was badly wounded, but at last the dragon writhed in its death agony at the hero's feet. Just then, Satan appeared and demanded the squire's body and soul as payment for the death of his creature. Piers replied that his soul was God's and his body would lie where his arrow fell. 
With his dying breath, he strung an arrow to his bow and fired it through the south window of Brent Pelham Church. It struck the north wall of the nave, and there Piers rests to this day in his elaborately carved 11th century tomb beneath an inscription which concludes, Shonks, one serpent kills, t'other defies, and in this wall, as in a fortress, lies. Before we set off, we've got a bit of a treat to set the tone for this episode. Actor, film star, comedian, director, all-round genius, in fact. Mr Simon Pegg has very kindly recorded a reading, especially for us, of Lewis Carroll's fantastical poem all about dragon-slaying. This is Jabberwocky. "'Twas brillig, and the slivy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe, all mimsy with the borogroves and the momraths at grave. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the maxim foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgy wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead. And with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O oh, frabjous day, Kaloo Calais, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogroves and the momraths at grave. Okay, we're off again. It's a Monday morning. We're heading off to Hertfordshire to Brent Pelham, the mysterious tomb of Mr. O. Piers Shonks. Shonks? Shonks. Dragon Slayer, allegedly. And we're going to meet Christopher Hadley, who's written a lovely book called Hollow Places, all about the tomb and its mysteries and many offshoots into fascinating other layers of folklore and scientific inquiry. So we're off in the Timmobile. Wending our way through the back streets of Hampstead Garden Suburb. It's had a, a fresh smattering of rain. There's an autumnal chill to the air. Perfect for this kind of endeavour. So we've read Christopher's marvellous book, and it's fantastic that he's agreed to meet us because he seems to be pursuing the same areas and interests that we're trying to do on the podcast, really, and is a modern-day antiquary, I think. 
fascinated with old things, old places, and trying to get through some layers of time to see where these things originate and maybe look for new solutions to old mysteries. I know he's spoken to the vicar of, uh, of the church to make sure it's open, because even with the greatest of planning, I completely forgot that not all churches are open. Because actually on our journeys, most of the churches have been shut, really. We always try a door. You've got to. I think it's, it's rude not to try a door. But this is a part of Hertfordshire that I haven't really seen much of. It's this sort of eastern part. It's usually we're all, all western, kind of where the Chilterns are. So this is, even though it's part of the county, it's the dark part. The dark side. The dark side of the county. Good. Beyond Stevenage. No one goes beyond Stevenage. No one goes beyond Stevenage. I must learn some other accents. I just always <laughs> go into a generic Cornish burr. <laughs> Covers most things. It does. <laughs> I'm sure that's how they all spoke in the past. Without a doubt. Isn't it? Every single one. They're all very short and they all spoke like that. Yeah. Hartford on the M25. Whoa! Look at that. Yeah. The car actually went off onto the side. I think your books are full. Not the books. I'm more concerned about the books. Yes, they're okay. Don't worry. What have you bought today? Well, have a look actually. I think you'll find oh, it quite, yeah. uh, quite good. So there's. Oh, the Law of the Land. Of the land which That's is always very useful. Very heavy. This one is Old Hertfordshire Calendar. Lovely stuff in it. And actually, Christopher mentioned some of Doris Jones Baker's well, research she, she, in his book. She is the woman that they went to for the Reader's Digest Hertfordshire chapter. There's another one I have as well, which is the Folklore of Hertfordshire, which was published by Batsford in about 1973. It's probably have, under the chair. I think it's gone under your seat. It's under the chair, but it's very good. And they have a lovely tradition in Brent Pelham called Drinking Day. And it happens at the in September, so we're, I think we're... We're pretty much in time for drinking day. Maybe it's today. And it's to do with the end of the harvest. And it was very much a, a, a pelham, because there's three pelhams. Don't ask me to name them. Brent pelham, Ferno pelham, and another pelham. And at the end of the harvest, they would have drinking day. Like heavy, heavy drinking to celebrate the end of the harvest. Wassailing. Is it kind of wassailing? type of wassail, yes. And on that subject of wassailing... Um, there was a traditional drink in this part of the world called lamb's wool that they would make. And apparently it's, it's a, a derivation of lamas oil or something like that. And it involves basically like, like a mulled ale, a Christmas mulled ale, which just sounds absolutely lovely. Lovely. Yeah, so have a little, have a little look through. Okay. The Hertfordshire Mowing Devil woodcut is rather beautiful. Yes. That's an absolute classic story of Hertfordshire. It's sort of like a latter-day crop circle, but there's a beautiful woodcut with a kind of cat-like devil in the middle of it, threshing away in a circular fashion. It's something to do with a deal with the devil, where the farmer was mowing or harvesting, and none of it was going down, and then the devil appears and you know, offers him something for his soul. And then there's a whole thing about, well, if you can 
harvest this grain in a day, then I will give you my soul. And then there's the inevitable trick that the farmer then plays on the devil as to why he can't take his soul. Yeah. Which is part of the Piers Shonk myth as well. Yes. Yes. It's tricking the devil, playing the game, and then tricking the devil. Ah, here's a Lamaste traditional harvest song. Now Lamas comes in, our harvest begin. We have done our endeavours to get the corn in. We reap and we mow and we stoutly blow and cut down the corn that did sweetly grow. Beautiful. Beautiful. You've got a great library, Tim. Thank you very much. Most of it's on the floor now. (laughs) (laughs) I am going to see if I can fish under the... Oh yeah, I found it. We're going into much nicer countryside now. Going past a stone cross. Now we're in a little village. Oh, look at that. The gables, circa 1400. Beautiful, half-timbered, yellowy house. Do you have sort of fantasies about buying an old cottage, possibly with a ghost, and living in a village? It would have to have a ghost. If it didn't have a ghost, I'd, I'd not want to. I find kind of ghosty stories like moving into a cottage in a village. There's something cosy about it as well, somehow. Remember Robin Redbreast? I do indeed. Fantastic. There is a little bit. Sherds? Yeah. Collecting sherds. Sherds, is it? Wasn't it Bernard Horsfall? I think it In sinister mode. These little, sort of, uh, extremely thick round glasses. Yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's brilliant. And I did have to look up the word shards, thinking, does he mean shards? But no, it is shards. I'm sure a lot of people did that. And John Bowen, who wrote Robin Redbreast, also wrote another very spooky play for today, which was recently released on Blu-ray in the volume three, I think. I don't know if you've seen it, Tim. It's called A Photograph with John Stride. And the original Juliet Bravo is in it as well. It's another folk horror, and one of the characters from Robin Redbreast is in this as well. It's another kind of slightly spooky village folklore thing. I think you'd really like it. Sounds right up my room, that does. Yeah. Hobbs Lane. Hobbs Lane. <gasps> you know who that refers to. Fernu Pelham is on our right. These are familiar names from all the reading. Now we're actually in them. Yeah. You haven't been here before, Tim. Never been here before in my life. Maybe in a past life. Maybe. Do you have any theories about having existed before? Or do you think it's all nonsense? Well, very strangely, I remember the very first time that I went to uh, Barbican Smithfield area. Yeah. And that first time I went there, and I must have been about 14, I absolutely swear blind that I knew where I was going. Isn't that strange? And I felt an immediately comfortable, having never really been in London before. And I just knew, oh yeah, if I go down here and go right, that's where that leads. And if I go down this way and go that way... I know where that. I know where I'm going. I got my geography. I know where I'm going. So I'm, maybe I used to work at the markets in some 
in some previous life or something, something like that. But it was the strangest, strangest sensation. I've yeah. never felt that anywhere else in London, but around Barbican, Smithfield, and that area. Which is quite ancient. There's that beautiful yeah. St. Bartholomew's Church. Yes, yes. And uh, Great Ormond Street is there. Hospital has been on that side for over a thousand years. Really? Can't believe that. I didn't know that. So we're now entering Brent Pelham. It looks like a very sleepy, quite small village. Here we are. Here we are. Mary the Virgin, Brent Pelham. You can smell kind of autumnal leaves. There's a thatched house right next door to the church. There's a red telephone box with a defibrillator in it, actually. Oh my goodness, and there's also some stocks right outside the church. Good Lord. Warning to us all, I dare say. Yes, we better be careful what we say. Ah, this might be Christopher now. He's coming on his bike. I kind of underestimated how much damage the Um, the storm last night had done. Lovely to meet you, Christopher. Thank you so much for meeting me. You're welcome. It's a beautiful place. Yes, gorgeous, isn't it? I, and I honestly haven't been here much since the book came out. I yeah. Occupied my, my life and imagination for probably about a decade. But then, of course, by the time that was coming out, I was deep into the next book. Are we allowed to ask what the next exploration is? The next book after Hollow Places is out. The yeah. road came out in January. So that's about a Roman road which goes past the yew tree where the Shonks' dragon lived um, and comes through here as well. Should we go inside? Yeah. <laughs> Is this the Reader's Digest you've got under your own? Oh, that's my book. I'd love you to sign it at some yeah, point. of course I will. Yeah. <laughs> but I messaged the rector and said it would be open. We looked in, but we didn't go near the tomb. In the book, I take a long time getting to the tomb. I thought it was a fantastic book. I really loved Thank it. You. It's exactly the sort of thing that we're both trying to do in audio terms, just gradual peeling back layers and getting excited and going off on a tangent, finding something and then following it. This is so much fun. And you don't quite know if you're going to get any answers, which maybe isn't the point of the thing. It's to just see... the journey. Journey. Yeah. Absolutely, it's the journey. Right, we're going in. People just will come in here and not notice much. I mean, it's a quite small church, isn't it? Most of it's 14th century... And it's quite plain, like lots of medieval churches, the Victorians did their bit to <laughs> tidy them up a bit too much. But uh, there's this thing in the wall here, which is extraordinary, because it's older than anything else in the church. It's older than the church that's here today. The tomb of Pierre Shonks. Well, it's set in the wall, and actually, I it was going to be darker in here. It's really hard to photograph. A photographer friend of mine came and did it in sections. There's a drawing of it in the 1830s, which I take as evidence. It's so good. I'll tell you the story. The tomb was opened in the 1830s. Imagine he came, and it was out of the niche here. So it's in this niche under the window in the north wall. You're talking about giants. He's supposed yeah. to be a giant. It's possible it was shortened. It's shorter than your standard Purbeck marble tomb. It doesn't look long, It's does about it? five look foot look six. Is there evidence that maybe he's not a giant? But giants could be folded into their graves. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, the bones yeah. can be made into yeah, any shape. Exactly. It wasn't the first thing that intrigued me. The first thing that intrigued me was the yew tree and where the dragon mm. was supposed to live, that mm. Pierre Shonk slew. But uh, over time, I just began to realise what an extraordinary object this is. Uh, John Weaver, when he was writing his catalogue of tombs that sort of tell us what survived pretty much just before the Civil War period, he, in the draft that's at the Society of Antiquaries, calls it wondrous strange, which is a term mm. I sort of <laughs> jumped yeah. on. Hours going through this stuff and just come across those two words which I thought were wonderful. Because if you look 
Pearl Bay Marble at the time, it's this beautiful sort of blue-black, it looks very grey to us. But this has come all the way from the Isle of Perth back in the late 13th century. Which in itself uh, is extraordinary. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It sort of came up the and coast. And you've got to wonder who ordered it, yeah. why they specifically wanted that stone, or Absolutely. how they even knew about where to source something. Yeah, like. it's very high status, and it's come further inland than you normally get them coming, because they've sort of come up the coast. It's thought that it's very unlikely that it'd be carved anywhere other than down on the Isle of Perbeck because the marble's quite difficult to deal with. Yeah. Possibly the Biff Perbeck marble is in London, working at that time, but it's more likely that it was done down there. And quite and hard to chisel. Yes, that's why, yeah, really hard to work with. In terms of what's on it, it's sort of cross slabs, so you've got a great big cross and a floriated cross in the middle. There are very few effigial monuments at this time. This is just almost unique in its iconography. You've got the symbols of the four evangelists... Well, this is man or an angel for St Matthew. You've got the angel here with the beautiful, beautiful wings, wings sort of going over the touch. side. Do you think he ran out of room? Very delicate, isn't it? I love that touch. And it does make you wonder, because I think as a piece of evidence for where it was, because this probably wasn't originally in the niche, but you know, the fact that that little touch on that side yeah. does make you think maybe it was made initially to go into a wall. So it's very unusual for a tomb to be inside a wall, presumably. Doesn't go all the way through, so an awful lot has been made of the fact in, in, in legend that it's mm. inserted into the wall to beat the devil. It doesn't go all the way through the wall, so you do get plenty of tombs in, inserted in arches and, and niches. You've got all these different elements driving the legend on. There's the carvings on the tomb, this quote we will come to that's on the back wall, this inscription, that was added later. I think you've probably got a local legend already about this character, because we, you know, I traced him back in history, you know, Pierre Shonks existed, and then you've got legends out in the countryside and in the villages around that stuff, and they start to sort of cross-pollinate each other and motifs from folklore. And so when you said you started from the yew tree, yes. had you actually found this enormous tree, or was it something you'd heard about and you thought, I've got to try and locate? Yeah, the latter. It was on a village website, when I first moved to the village, it mentioned that there was a dragon slayer buried in this tomb in the church, mm-hmm. and he had slain a dragon that lived under a yew tree in a Great Pepsil's Field. I thought, I've got to find this yeah. yew. There's a whole story about the yew being felled, and in the 19th century when it was felled, the guys who felled it, and I found this in a letter that had been written to a vicar in the 1880s, the workman who had felled this yew tree looked down into the cavity. Oh, they went away for breakfast, to tell the story properly. They went away for breakfast. Greg's. <laughs> yeah. 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 Quick Greg's yeah. That's it. Went to, went to Greg's. This is the 1830s. Yeah. Uh, go away for breakfast, and when they return, there's a big hole underneath the yew tree. The yew tree has collapsed into it, and they yeah. look down into it, and they decide that this must have been the lair where the dragon lived that Pierre Shonks had killed. So I was fascinated, did they really? I think mm. that was the first thing I wanted yeah. to like, really explore. Labourers in the 1830s, would they think that? Is it just a bit of a private joke between them? But the more I looked into it and the more you kind of get over your reversion to superstition and, uh, and the lives of these people, you, I really believe they did believe it. And whether there was already an existing sort of legend about that particular area. It's a wonderful mm. piece of remote countryside. It's a piece of land that sits between three parishes. It's sort of a real liminal place, if you like. And there is this huge tree. It's, it's a few metres from where the ancient Roman road runs. I finally found the name of the field in old maps. There's a farmer here, Ted Barkley, who has lots of old field maps and remembers the field names. Mm. And the names had changed. Some of them are on the tithe map in slightly different form and found the field name. So we knew it was on the boundary between two fields. And it was a matter of looking at even older maps and finding there was a piece of woodland that came up right up to that point where the two fields met on a ditch. And the records in the letters of the vicar, it said there'd been a stile 
in the middle of the tree. It's split, great old venerable yew. You can see on old maps there's a footpath leading to nowhere at this same point. But if it was a boundary tree on the edge of a wood, and of course the imagination then starts to run. Was it a, a sacred site at some point? I think it obviously put ideas in these labourers' heads. It was this period of clearance when the farmers were clearing the land so they could get the maximum yield from the crops, and so hedgerows were being torn up and trees chopped down. And uh, I wonder if they kind of felt sort of, sort of fairly superstitious yeah, about removing mm, this sort absolutely. of venerable old yew. So their task was to cut down the whole tree? Yeah, take down the tree. And does any of it exist still? Nothing in in situ. It was quite interesting to try and see if you could track down anything that had ever been made from it. It's an interesting story. The uh, antiquary William B. Garish writes about another folk legend from these parts in Anstey, the blind fiddler of Anstey. Oh, yes, I was reading about this. Yeah, he goes out to research this and goes to a chalk cave. And the guy who bought the house where this now entrance, this cave was, turned out to have been there when the yew tree was chopped down, back wow. in the Pelhams in, in the 1830s. Mm. And he says that the villagers took bits of it, and he took cuttings of this tree. But it's amazing wood, isn't it? Yew yeah. wood. Yes, absolutely beautiful wood. So it probably is in chairs or yeah. doors. You sort of <laughs> say at the end of that chapter, I think, like, I'm looking out for that Windsor chair. I spoke to a carpenter or a cabinet maker friend of mine who got some yew and made me some little bits and pieces because it is such a beautiful wood, isn't it? It's probably quite solid and quite hard to carve as well, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Perfect marble. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You like the analogy. (laughs) These two extremely hard substances and useful substances. Is it quite chalky landscape around here? Yes, the geology is very very chalk, so it's possible if we're thinking about why there's a cavity under the tree, it's it's Mm. not impossible. That's Mm. one had formed in the chalk. But there's no evidence to say that they found bones, dinosaur bones? Or... No, and people have said, oh, maybe they found a mosaic of her, yeah, <laughs> with a yeah. dragon on it. And I think Gerish again wrote to the Natural History Museum asking them if there was evidence of sort of dinosaur bones being found around here. And I think that's sort of conflating the idea of the origin of dragons in general with this specific idea of a dragon, which really relates back to this fellow on the tomb, which I think was, so it was already in their minds. I'm not sure whether the, like, this made it into the book, but I like In the Woodlanders and I can't remember his name. Yeah, that idea that if that's your frame of reference... So he makes the point in The Woodlanders that when he was asked by some very clever voice and well-educated voice who ran around the walls, and supposed to be Hector, you're supposed to answer from Troy, he answered some local guy who'd run around the church, and, he, and that's his frame of reference. And at the time, you've got scholars associating elephant bones with the flood or with Claudius coming over with the elephants. We're going to try and go to Jacko Legs in Western the Great there. Because was that not dug up and they scientifically found it was an elephant bone? Well, the story is from there. They had a bone that was displayed in the church at Western, which is said to be the leg bone of Jacko Legs. And I think John Tredescant... He bought it and had it in Tredescant's Arctic in Lambeth. When that found its way into the Ashmolean, I get quite cross about this in the book, don't I? This kind of the yeah. <laughs> enlightenment iconoclasm where they threw it out with scorn when they realised it's an elephant's leg. But it's and, still extraordinary, isn't yeah. it? Why would an elephant bone be here in the first place? Exactly. <laughs> and no one asked that question. Yeah. So why is it an elephant bone? And the fact that people thought it was a giant, that's fantastic. Mm. It's both. Yeah. Yeah. To us, it's both, isn't it? It's both an elephant's bone and it was this bone people thought was a giant's leg, mm. which is actually the more interesting thing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think the concept of dinosaur bones being found relate to the idea that, oh, these must have been dragons? Dragons in general. I think that's really plausible. 
There's that book by Adrienne Mayer, and she makes a very good case for bones being found in antiquity and being assembled in ways that created a mammoth bones can be assembled to make it look yeah. like a cyclops. I think the ideas fed each other, so they would mm. find these giant unexplained bones sticking out of cliff faces, and they would invent stories about them and maybe yeah. invent mythical creatures. But likewise, mm. these had already been formed in the imagination. They acted as evidence for them. It's like that Monty Python sketch, you know, the one where they find a toe. And they yeah. go, well, we've just reconstructed this and it becomes a mammoth with a toe nose. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I write about that in, the, in the, my next book, In the Road, I talk a lot about this sort of reconstruction of things from single tiny. I love it when you go to museums and they'll have like an, an axle pin mounted and then a whole drawing yes, of a Roman chariot. Yeah, massive <laughs> thing. Tiny little thing. I love the fact in the book that you reference other literature and you know, the Brontes and... Hardy, and you get the sense of somebody who's interested in so many things that there's a sort of personal narrative that goes through the book because sometimes mm. history and archaeology can be very dry, you know, because we want to do this thing because it's about trying to capture atmosphere and feeling as much as truth or poetry or something that is also part of human nature yeah. and why people tell legends and stories. Well, thank you very much. I love it when people describe my books to me because I think those threads you mentioned, I, I was trying to keep those plates spinning and it's mm. sort of a meditation on... It's using this, this tomb and the folk mm. legends that it sends out into the landscape as, as something just to contemplate and meditate upon and find out you talk about truth. Yeah, you can have the facts, but obviously there are greater truths, aren't there, we find in art and literature. Yes. And, yeah. If he wasn't a dragon slayer, what did it mean to the people around here? And Exactly, a sort of civic pride that comes out of having a dragon slayer buried in your church. Yeah, yeah in that sense of place. Because I'm from Hertfordshire, but I'm yeah. from West Hertfordshire. OK. Yeah. So this is quite a rare tale, because usually there isn't that many stories told about Hertfordshire in the sense of folklore. You heard a lot about, obviously, Cornwall and other places, but Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, these kind of places, have very few tales that kind of make it out of the county. Yes. Which is yeah. why I was so intrigued. Yes. When this came, I was like, oh, that's from where I am. The, the Hertfordshire St George is... As Garish called him. There's some defacement to the faces. Yes, I mean, again, who can say, but it looks like classic kind of iconoclastic behaviour. The, the praying hands on the central angel have been chopped off. The faces have been disfigured, have the faces removed. So you have the central angel carrying the soul, surrounded yeah. by the symbols of the evangelists, and you have this beautiful floreated cross with a rose in the middle, which perhaps represents the Virgin Mary kind of interceding. There's the dragon blowing his flames. Or some people see it as a support for the cross. I think it's very much to me it's a dragon yeah. breathing fire, which you do see. And it's art. It can be both things at once. And maybe that was in the sculptor's mind anyway. Taking a particular image of a cross, supporting a cross, and also having seen images of dragons breathing fire, which appear in manuscripts by this time. And it's quite um, unusual for something this old to have survived all of the dissolution of monasteries and yes. different things. Yeah, the big theme of the book is sort of survival of things, like yeah. the battle between memory and forgetting. And it is wonderful that this has been venerated and preserved. I think some beliefs and folk legends come about and folklore come about because they're reaching to something that they love. Say so in a hagstone with a hole through it, they love that thing, so they find reasons. It's a beautiful object. And the same with this, I think part of the secret of its survival is the fact it's... It's so unusual. Or maybe um, superstition as well, that you don't want to move something that has power. Yeah. Or is, 
involves dragons and giants, right. possibly. And if you disturb those things, what are you bringing on yourself in a kind of M.R. James yes, style? Yeah. I said, I'll tell you the story about being opened. So there's these various accounts left, taken around about 1900, but from elderly villagers who remember it being opened. It was probably opened about twice. In the 1830s, two church wardens supposedly took finger bones out of it, and they were sort of giant finger bones. There's this lady called Marion Hudson who wrote this wonderful letter to Garish saying that uh, they're sort of double-jointed, size of a giant man, and that they'd been taken by the church wardens, and Mr Morris took his home and uh, was so unnerved by it being in the house, but the very next day he came and put it back in the tomb. He put it in the glass cabinet that's right in the corner of the room. Right. And it had to be taken out and brought back. So you wonder what happened that night. Tapping that, on glass. Yes, oh, yeah. Things that happened in the night. The, Mr. Brown, the other church warden, she says he never knew the going of his bones. I love that expression. That's brilliant, isn't, isn't that it? Amazing. <laughs> that is a very hardy-esque phraseology. Both books are this idea of finding different ways to the past, yeah. and one of them is through language, and I, I write a lot about field names. And just sort of phrases like that that people used, or legalistic terms that now sound like poetry to us. The field survey that was done by the school children in the yes. 1930s. Yes. That's so beautiful, isn't it? Mm. The names of the fields which conjure something completely different from other maps. They're just very poetic again, very evocative of people living in places and giving them almost character. Yes, fossilised preserves of stories, aren't they? Mm. And, and people's, people who lived in the past who owned those fields and what they did in them and how they worked them. They sound wonderful to our ear as well. Do you think there are still people who call some of the fields by those names Oh, yeah, now? absolutely. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I do. There are, there are other people, yeah. certainly. Probably... Not that many now, mm. know, know them, but uh, the woman used to put signs up with the field names on them so people oh, would really? remember. It's nice. Was it difficult to find Great Pepsil's field? It had another name on a lot of the field maps, right. so it was sort of confirming that that was its real name. The farmer, Ted Barclay, said it was called that, but on a lot of the field maps it was called something else. So it was a matter of going and finding older and older maps. Sort of found it was, it was called Pipsels, and Pepsils Mead was next to it. It had been formed out of smaller fields. And do you know what that name would have meant? In the book I talk about an awful lot of field names and what they mean. That one's a complete mystery. It sounds like, it's, again, it points at antiquity or something very old. It has the sort of feel of an Anglo-Saxon personal name. So there's somewhere else, I think, in Bedfordshire that has a similar sounding name. Name experts tend to fall back on if they don't know what it means. It's, a, it's an Anglo-Saxon personal name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How far away is that field from here? I think in the book I talk, because it's supposed to be the arrow fire, there's different oh, yeah. that's to right, mark yeah. the place in the wall. Once the mm. sort of Robin Hood bit gets added in the sort of 19th century, it's like the grassy knoll moment, working out whether he could really have fired an arrow from where the dragon was So the legend killed. was that when he, he fired an arrow which came through... through the chancel window. Yeah. Um, but there's different places he's supposed to have fired this arrow from, so depending on the story you read, there's a moated site called mm. Shonks Moat, which is the manor yeah. that Peter Shonks, Peter Shonks, was associated with. That's over in that direction. The field where the, the yew tree was is sort of over yeah, in that yeah. direction. They're both about sort of a mile, mile and a half away. There seem similarities between the Jacko legs legend and this legend. 
giants who were kind of champions, and then the idea of the firing of the final arrow, which... Oh, he was supposed to be a great archer as well, wasn't he? Yeah, Yeah. you just wonder that these were village heroes, or whether this was a a widespread sort of mythology that just goes across Mm. much wider areas. Well, I think there's some academic work needs to be done on... The transference of stories between sites owned by the same families, the same manorial families. Mm. So you find the people who own these villages would also own places out in Essex, and mm. you get some of the stories are very similar. They would have owned thousands of acres of land in different yeah. areas. And they'd have someone who was responsible, that bailiff, who would be travelling between these sites and yeah. sharing stories and old wives' mm. tales and legends, mm. and, and they start to infect each other. I think the arrow is quite a late addition to this legend. It's in the Robin Hood legends. It's the late addition yeah. to the Robin Hood legend. It doesn't come into about the 1770s where you oh, start getting okay. ideas that his, his grave was where he fired an arrow on his deathbed. I think Jackery Legs was supposed to have done robberies for the poor as well. OK. Kind of mythical folk hero that goes across... Mm. It's, it's a, a motif that places. you probably yeah. can trace back yeah. to yeah. all sorts isn't of isn't legends. Is a link between Robin Hood and Puck? Robin, Robin Goodfellow. Goodfellow. Robin Goodfellow, yes. yeah. And that tale, because obviously it drifts all the way down the country and kind of appears everywhere, that there's a similar thing of having a local folk hero. Allied to Jack in the Green type things, yeah. Mm. I don't know if Piers Shonk was part of that kind of tradition as well, maybe. Of, of the Green Man sort yeah. of tradition? I think that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, some people think this is sort of foliage coming out of the mm. dragon's mouth. Yeah. So a green dragon, perhaps. But, of course, this has got religious... Iconography. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's, it's also important to remember to why, why would they have this on the tomb in the 13th century? Yeah. I'm, I'm not convinced that it's, such, it's as simple as just saying it's a representation of the triumph of Christianity over evil. That's a bit simplistic. And certainly at that time, it's saying, look at my tomb <laughs> and pray for my soul in purgatory. <laughs> with the four evangelists sort of protecting him, forming this kind of lorica around the soul, remembering why these images are put on there. It's, it's A lot of it is about the soul and protecting the soul. Because yeah. there was this idea which you talk about where people offer prayers long after someone's dead to ensure that they're in yeah. the afterlife, that they're, they're being protected by whatever you're doing in this world. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's, there's all sorts of calculations and strange formulae for working out how quickly you could get someone through purgatory by the amount of prayers that were said. And we know it best from people like Henry the Seventh and even Henry the Eighth, when he's you know, not supposed to believe in this stuff anymore, taking an awful lot of precautions and founding sort of chantry chapels where mm. you know, priests would pray for them every day in perpetuity. Someone of Shonks's status could well. There are similar landowners around that time who, who did found chantry chapels around here to have the their soul prayed for and hurried through purgatory for all their sins. So what about the um, inscription? I'm just unravelling this and the sort of various forms it's taken over over the years was interesting, but we have it's, it's is, in Latin. It's in stone, is it? This looks like wood, doesn't it? It's, it's on wood, isn't it? This is a replacement one, I think. This is probably about 100 years old now, but it was there from Elizabethan times. Because it's Opier Shonks, which is a bit of a mystery. Well, you can think of it as sort of vocative. Oh, Piers Shonks. Okay. <laughs> I think the most likely is it just it was of Piers Shonks. So yeah. people have read of Piers Shonks, of a place that was of Piers Shonks. The gentry in the 18th century or the 19th century have seen it on a map or seen it written down in a field book and think that's his name. And it's not. It's just referring to a place that was his land. And we have but, this date, but that doesn't quite match 
the dates of the no again stone and the carving. No, no, it's quite interesting, isn't it? I do sort of go to lengths to sort of track track it back in imagination if he had been around in in 1086. I think it's a convenient date in in history for and again I, I think it gets added quite late. I, I did look into this and I sort of decided that at the time the inscription was written, very few people would have known about Doomsday Book or associated that mm. year with anything. I mean, and to us, 1086, we mm. know that's the year of Doomsday Book. And again, I think that's just been picked out as, as a date that suggests it's very old. <laughs> the, the historical record suggests he's, he's 13th century, he's contemporary with the tomb. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To move something like this, you're saying it would have come up the coast? Yes, very likely. It depends on how much conflict there was, either at sea mm. or on land, uh, which routes they often took at that time. The cheaper way of carrying stuff is by water. And if you're coming from the Isle of Purbeck, sorry, like it would have come up around the coast. But there was a, definitely a trade of that going on. Where you find Purbeck marble tombs and Purbeck marble used in churches along, along that route. Yeah, so you can imagine it coming along the coast and possibly coming up all the rivers. Imagine that journey. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I had to stop. I think that would have been another book as I started to try and investigate. But uh, So nothing of Cadmus nor St George, those names of great renown survives them but their fames. Time was so sharp set as to make no bones of theirs nor of their monumental stones. But shonk, one serpent kills, t'other defies, and in this wall as in a fortress lies. The Latin it says the same, basically. I mean, it's been suggested it was a schoolboy exercise and a local schoolboy wrote it, or perhaps a priest. I'm pretty certain it was there from Elizabethan times. Oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. It's written a bit like a riddle. One serpent and another serpent. Absolutely. It compares him to Cadmus, the Greek dragon slayer, and St George, of course, our patron saint. It seems the central point of it is saying nothing of theirs survives, but, but this, but this does. does. Works very nicely with this idea of sort of memory and forgetting. Um, this, this has survived. And it survives because of the beautiful tomb, but because stories start to be told about it, it becomes harder and harder to forget. They support each other, and the names and the landscape and all these things prop it up, <laughs> make it less and less likely that we're going to lose it. The final couplet is that, but was shonk, mm. one serpent kills, t'other defies and in this wall, as in a fortress lies. And that's where the legend then comes about, the devil gets involved. 
Nelfry has killed the dragon. The devil's supposed to appear. He's very cross. He was his favourite dragon. Oh, like your dog. You <laughs> someone's dog. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you ran over my dog. And I'm going to have your soul, whether you're buried inside a church or out, which is a nice formula from the Middle Ages. Which and is why he's buried in the wall. He's buried in the Neither wall. Neither inside, inside nor a church out. nor out. Yeah. I think that's why the idea of him being in the wall becomes so central, rather than the fact that it's in a niche, because I think if it went all the way through, you know, there are tombs that go all the way through, there's not very many, and they're sort of fairly mysterious and have, usually have stories as well, folk legends of people being buried in a place that's neither in nor out, and you find yeah. in other places as well. And, and you've got the buttresses outside yes. with the crosses. They're possibly consecration crosses. They appear to have been rechiselled into the wall outside. They're either side of this tomb, which is telling. I mean, the tombs clearly intrigued people, certainly after the Reformation, when people forget what it means and what it was originally for. That's when the stories then, they're about people being confused by it or intrigued by it, start to tell stories to explain it. And I think beautiful objects and unusual objects do that, don't they? And, and frightening objects. I think this isn't scary to us, since dragon might have been a scary object to, to people back then. And yeah. is there any sense they might have painted some of these... I thought I could see some pigmentation, took some photographs, I've shown it to some experts on monuments and they're not convinced. But certainly some tombs were painted. His tooth is very nicely visible still. Yes. Dragon tooth. Ted Barkley, the farmer, he has a carving of this in his staircase in his library. And is there a sense that the legend is still told, that if you were in the pub talking to people that they would know anything about it? Certainly older people in the village knew it and the oldest person I knew who I'd go and talk to quite regularly lived across the road from me. He remembered it from when he was at school but it's quite telling because he kind of mangled the telling of it and added extra details. And you also wonder if people coming to church, which obviously would have happened as a community, would have kept the legend alive because they would see the tomb but now obviously we're much more secular and people maybe don't even know it's here. Hopefully they will all listen to the podcast. Keep doing our keep doing our influxes. Keep doing our bit to keep these legends alive. It's a conflict that when you're trying to sort of unravel a legend, in some ways you're also killing it because you're looking for truth, you're looking for reality, but reality maybe isn't always the point. Yeah, of course not. And yeah, I think I say in the conclusion, don't I? I met someone in here who said, oh, are you writing about this? He said, oh, do you, do you think it's true? And, you, and yeah. you're conflicted because, yeah. of course, I want it to be true. Yeah. But if I've spent all that time researching this to be able to say, I can, and now I can, I can affirm it's not true, what's the point? Uh, because the more interesting truth is that people thought he killed a dragon, mm. and that story's come down to us. You have to be careful not to be overly rational about these things with the Enlightenment and rationalism. It's, it's about having it both ways. I think we're intelligent enough now, <laughs> mature enough, to, to have these things both ways. These wonderful stories and legends that we can learn a lot from, and that fortify us. I think if you, if, you, if you throw away a lot of this stuff, if you just scoff at fairies, and well, look at what social media has people believing now. The human mind wants to believe fantastical things. I also have a quote in the book which I, I love, the psychiatrist, the, the child who believed in a flying elephant yeah. and said to the child, elephants don't fly, and realised what he should have said. <laughs> He's like, oh, how high does it fly and what colour is it? All these much more interesting questions. And um, as a parent, you have some of these conflicts as your children are growing up because yes. they will sort of say, oh, well, when's Santa coming? And oh. you're complicit to lying or you're giving them magical things to believe in but at some point your child will turn around and say you lied to me well, where are all my teeth I've been taken by a fairy <laughs> uh, 
roots. I did, I did wrestle with this while writing the book because I love this stuff. And a lot of ancient folklore probably perpetuated unhelpful beliefs and dangerous beliefs and practices. I worried that by focusing on folk beliefs and everything, you are championing what can be a dangerous mindset in, in believing mm. stuff and nonsense. I mean, I think Marina Warner is quite big on this. A lot of this stuff was metaphor. A lot of the people who were perpetuating this stuff, and I do wonder to the extent it was perpetuated, not necessarily by the folk, but the gentry come or incomers get fascinated and re- revive stories and legends. And the idea that a lot of those people there, and even the folk, are finding metaphors and for the way to explain the world in interesting ways and stories to explain the world. Did they 100% believe in these things? Feels like folklore and folk horror are very much becoming a bigger part of culture again because we're losing touch with certain roots but you know we're also animalistic creatures and fears and primeval things Mm. are part of what we naturally kind of experience yes trying to understand why we're why we're scared of the dark or shiver up your spine when you're out at dusk in the middle of a field far from home and (laughs) which is strangely pleasurable and when you grew up did you were you reading lots of fantasy literature a lot of things i kind of got into quite late like alan garner who i absolutely love you were talking in your podcast about uh, arthur c Clarke's. i've got that book the book club associates with that little logo of the three letters yeah one i love from that is uh, the story of the marquis de saint germain the idea of immortals I talk about that in my next book, In the Road, about there are ways of getting to the past. Time travel, ghosts, immortals, they're just other ways the human mind can cope with thinking about people from the past and how we might get in touch with places that are thick with history, thin with history, if you like, the sort of thin places. I like that as a concept. There's that other fantastic character that you touch on in the book, William Wright of the Beaches. That's where the carving of the dragon now is. Incredible yeah. character. <laughs> yes, his wenches, playing cards with him, four-strapping wenches. Amazing. And you read that story and he just sort of seems like some 18th century rue. And then I found out later in other accounts that he was paraplegic. He had fallen off his horse. And that's why he lived like this. Yeah. And you think, no one mentions this. They're just very disapproving of him and his lifestyle and his behaviour. Yeah. But he lived in that extraordinary house, Beaches, which is Shonks' manor. Quite so close the, to the village. Yeah, yeah, so very close. And the moat is on the land, on Beaches' land. Because it looks extraordinary with those big Tudor chimneys. I love that it's got windows in the chimneys. The wing that's missing because it was haunted. Uh, and that's where you get the stories, people tell the stories of William Wright because they assume it's him because he was such an ne'er-do-well or one of his brothers killed his mistress. So they pulled the whole wing down because it was haunted in the 18th century. So, so the stories go. Yeah. Well, if yeah. in doubt, lose it. <laughs> I think uh, the manor house in Phoenix Pelham had a lot of it removed as well. And it's usually the prosaic, boring explanation is that if they didn't need that, they would sell off the building materials. And so when the bones in the 1830s, when they took the bones out, was there any record of whether they were any bigger? No, no drawings or, mm. or a, a proper scale taken. It's just a count. And it was a, a very large man from the bones, which, of course, forensic scientists will tell us that's an impression you can get from spread out bones in a grave. It was probably able to perpetuate it as well. I was like, are these big? Yes, yes, they're very big. In folklore, you get these two types of giant, don't you? You get very large people, seven foot high, and you get these giants that are big as hills and throw rocks and create dolmens for us and raise mounds and what have you. He was very much a sort of giant. He couldn't put someone in his pocket, but he could well have been a very large man, a very imposing character, and one of the reasons he's remembered when you start going back into the historical records and, and looking at the history of that family. Which must have been quite difficult. What was your 
trail with that. I'm Just, like the most inefficient researcher. Don't in say that. I won't buy the book. <laughs> I like to think that's a virtue yeah. because you gather so much material and it sort of gets condensed down and cooked over a long time and you find things you wouldn't find. So it was a very roundabout way and once you get back into the Middle Ages, that's the bit that took the longest and I had to get help. I had no qualms in emailing academics and sort of saying, well, could this be true and could that be true? Can you help me read this? Because I can't read this. And there was a retired legal scholar who I contacted who was an expert on the sort of 13th century and I sort of asked him some questions about some things I'd found and he came back to me and said, oh, and have you seen this and this and this and this? Years before, he'd put out his own catalogue of occurrences of a particular sort of example of a legal situation. And he had loads of examples with with Shonks named, and so it became an embarrassment of riches. And I suppose it's legal documents that often are the, like Shakespeare's mortgage. It's his will, isn't it? It's his will with the bed. Second best bed. bed. See, I always think that's that's misrepresented, you know what I'm that could have been an in-joke with his wife. We sleep yeah. in the second best bed because the best yeah. bed's for the guests. The guests. So Apparently that is that the is thing. The second quite... best bed is the guest bed, so that uh, would have been the better yeah. bed. Anyway, yes, so one of the great fun things about doing hollow places was sort of virgin territory, and it was finding little bits and pamphlets and lots and lots of articles over the last hundred years or so, and bits in journals and notes and queries from the 19th century, Gerrish's archive at the Hertfordshire Archives. But otherwise, you're sort of going out there and meditating upon things. The wondrous strange that spending a day at the Society of Antiquaries looking through Weaver's draft of ancient monuments and just coming across that one phrase. Was this in the hairy book? No, it wasn't the hairy book. Which is like a goatskin... Yes, it still has its original goatskin cover, so it's still hairy. That dates back to... 1140s or some of the earliest charters Mm. and things. It's now in the London Metropolitan Archives. That was part of St Paul's. It's a good thing and a bad thing in that these villages were peculiars of St Paul's, so the, uh, the records were there, but so much stuff was Burned lost in the, in the fire. Which is a, a strange thing you do keep coming across, for like with the map of the school children. You, you reach a point where, ah, oh, it was destroyed by enemy bombing, <laughs> or it was burnt down in a fire, or again, it comes back to the theme of the memory and forgetting and the number of things that are sort of lost and destroyed through malice and stupidity and, and an accident. Yes, so I got a lot of help with the medieval stuff, but you start to piece things together. And obviously, lots of things now get digitised, especially in catalogues to archival collections get digitised because then you can get hits on the National Archive. So over the years, I would keep checking to see if there's any new mention of materials. There were a lot of deeds, Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, for the land in this area, they'd own land around here. They were really fruitful and just beautiful as well. Like really fun to go and look at and look at the, the wax seals and all that sort of thing. So I do try and get that balance between giving you the results of the research but also taking you on the journey. That's a process yeah. which yeah. I really enjoy. It's quite a page turner. You're excited about the research you're doing and you get to a certain point and then it leads somewhere else. So I think it's a very good read, very interesting mm. and atmospheric mm. and lovely piece of work. Thank you. Will you sign my book? I will, of course I will. <laughs> Tim's already got a signed well, I already copy. have a sign. Right. No, I can stamp it if you oh, like. Oh, yeah. I stamp. Have, have, have you got the stamp? I haven't got the stamp. I haven't got the dragon stamp. There we go. Beautiful. Heartly 
recommend his book, The Hollow Places. It's much more than just talking about the one thing. He goes off into all kinds of areas of folklore, history, social history, geology, archaeology, and more philosophical questions about storytelling and fairy tales, myths. Yeah, the sense of place. Yeah. just pulled over for a minute to have a delve into Tim's mobile library about the next story we were off in search of. Here it is. One of the devil's few successes was at Gravely in Hertfordshire, where he managed to knock down the church steeple. But even this was more by luck than judgment. He had already taken six shovels of earth from Wormley Wood, where the holes can still be seen, and had thrown them at Stevenage. All had fallen short to form what are now the six hills, in reality, Bronze Age, barrows. Furious and frustrated, he tried one last throw, missed Stevenage by two miles, and hit Gravely Church. Ah, and that is where we're heading now. That's the six barrows by the M something or other. Yes, it's by Six Hills Common. It's just near the station, I think, by a nightclub. Let's go and explore. Hopefully it's called the Barrows Nightclub. It was called Flex, which may be the flexing of the giant's arm. So Christopher Hadley said, look out on top of these Roman barrows for different types of wildlife, plants. Mm. Flora and fauna. And it's interesting as well, because there's a tale in the village I'm from where a certain flower called a purple pasque flower is said to grow in Shillington and nowhere else. Legend has it it's 
wherever Saxon blood has been spilt, this flower grows. And it doesn't grow anywhere else in the county, as far as I'm aware, but it does grow in Chillington. Have you ever seen it anywhere else? No, never seen it anywhere else. It's true. So it must be true. It must be true. In another version of the same story, I read it was a giant that was throwing the earth. To create the six hills? Yeah. It's always one or the other. Well, maybe they're interchangeable. I think so. But the very history of giants in this land, I find absolutely fascinating. I have never really associated Britain with giants, and yet the creation myths of this island and the people that have come to live on it are fascinating. I've got a beautiful Blake book from the Tate, and there's a lot of paintings and poems and story about Albion. Yes. The giant Albion and his mythology. And there's also Gog and Magog. The fascinating story with those things is how they how they interweave. So I think it's Geoffrey of Monmouth that writes in his histories about Brutus and the Trojans being exiled and sailing to this land, and Britain taking the name from Brutus and them creating the new Troy. And in fact, London became for so a time. Brutus is Brit. Brutus Britain. becomes Britain. That's such a strange thing, isn't it? Brutus. Again, yeah. this strange island we live on is part of all these invading other influences, the Anglo-Saxons, the Normans, the Danes. There's so much mixed blood and this whole idea of sort of Brexit. Well, I'm English. Well, yeah, but being English means that you already belong to Germany, Norway, yeah. Denmark, you know. And even further afield, Greece or Albania, Rome, all of these things because the, the, the myth that they then or the stories they created after that is when Brutus landed in Totnes he was met by a giant oh, Gog Magog that was Gog Magog that was Gog Magog there was maybe one giant he was one giant and it becomes two there was a second giant whose name was Corneus something like that Brutus's champion so there was this blending of one giant two giants and back and forth but then a lot of scholars were saying, well, 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 how did the giants get here? That is one thing saying, well, Brutus and the New Britain and the New Troy, but where did all the giants come from? So there's a tale that says there was the daughter of a Greek king or a Syrian king called Albina, and she had 33 sisters, and the king said, right, I'm going to marry off my daughters, and the daughters, all of them, didn't want to do this, so they plotted to kill their suitors. The king got wind of this and exiled them and set them off on a rudderless boat into the sea. And they landed on this darkly forested island and got out and thought, oh, well, wow, amazing, okay, well, here we are. And sure enough, the devil does appear, has his wicked way with all the sisters. All 33. All 33. Oh, you've got to admire his family. Honestly, it was all done in an afternoon. I mean, honestly, that's it's impressive. And they gave birth to the giants. So the giants that inhabited what became Albion from Albina. It was her name, much like Brutus's name. Her name was Al- Albina. Yeah. And that became Albion. So they say. It's all sex, sex, sex. Just constant so maybe giant 
myth comes from that, that idea that this land was a land of giants and giants had to be defeated. There's another kind of theory that the indigenous people of our island were Celts. They were quite small people. Yeah. But then when the Vikings, when the Danes people came, they were big in stature. So, in a way, they could have been mistaken for being this other race of much larger giant people. I think the myth of the centaurs comes from that as well, when the Britons first saw Viking invaders coming on horseback, they thought they were maybe one creature, human torsos and these horses' yeah. bodies. Covered in furs and hair. Yeah. We will never know. We will never know. in the name. Why is this hidden barrow so hidden? It's probably depressingly in the middle of some terrible estate. Oh. Mm. Well, we know for a fact that it's by the Aztec. Do you have much dealing with Stevenage? I did as a youth. I came to the hour price. It's sadly all gone. Yeah. And the guys that used to work in there were absolutely brilliant. Are you like this and this? Oh, you're like this. Uh, okay. Yeah, there was a special thing about going to a record shop started to know the people and could chat about the music you liked. It's also very close to the Holiday Inn, so actually we went the other way. We did. This looks like it. So they are in the middle of a kind of verge between very modern buildings, but they're very definite, large barrows, overgrown. This one's got gorse. Here we are, we have arrived. Sandwiched between, as you rightly said, the Asda. I think this is Stevenage Police Station and a couple of other. Got to uh, start in. Bylaws of the Six Common, you haven't got your firearm on you, I hope. Oh, the Roman burial mounds known as Six Hills were probably constructed in the second century AD. Six Hills has been reduced in size over the years. They're not joking at all. Much of the land. Listen to that. That's the train station. Was taken over for private farmland, and the 1836 tithe map shows a large area called Six Barrow Common to the west of the Six Hills themselves, divided into strips of land for farming. By then, the area of common land at the Six Hills had been reduced to a narrow fragment. It's very windy, you can probably hear the wind. But the mounds themselves survived and are now a scheduled ancient monument. Let's just go and have a quick, quick wander the barrows. They're very definite. Beautiful old oak tree. 
an area for deliveries literally within about two or three feet. I think this is a very antithesis of ancient things meeting modern and being pushed and pushed and pushed till they are literally we're walking up the second mound now nearest the roundabout. It's lovely and incredibly depressing at the same time. It really is. There's little rabbit holes that go into the mound. Long grass. These would be burial mounds. Apparently these were burial mounds. So I wonder if the, the bones were still be in there. Some of them have been excavated about 100 years ago and others haven't been touched at all. So there might be literal treasures under our feet. Roman burials, so presumably leaders of legions. It's a kind of it's a, almost like a crater in the third one. Maybe this was one that was excavated. There's a deep hole in this one. Just walking up the fourth mound. Looks like badgers. Oh, could be. You're looking for scat. <laughs> for scat. Always after scat. There's another tale around these as well about the black dog of Stevenage. Supposed to roam these mounds as well. A double legend of giants and devils and black dogs. Doesn't really feature very much around these parts. Usually Norfolk. So there's a bit of different vegetation on there. Yeah, there is, isn't there? Looks like mini pineapples. Berries would be good for harvesting now. September, good for the hawthorn berries. Should have yeah. bought my foraging basket. Do you have foraging bottles? Bags and all, all sorts. Cutters. When it all falls around us, I'll survive. So that was Barrow 5. We'd better do them all. We're seeing as we're here. Steeply down the side. And now we're very close to the roundabout. Literally on the roundabout. I have driven past this as a young man and I never knew this was here. Never really cast an eye, would you, really? And here we are. This is the, the final barrow. I'm sad for them because it's such yeah. a horrible modern encroachment, isn't it? It really is. Endlessly noisy. There won't be any peace. Right on the edge of the old North Road. It probably has always been busy, but not like this. Not quite like this. Hard to get a sense of atmosphere or ancientness, really. Yeah. I'm glad we found them. Yeah, I'm glad we found them. I'd have been quite put out if I hadn't. Mm. Well, I suppose it's interesting in terms of layers of history, and there's probably a lot of people who live around here who have no idea that they're yeah. anything other than a few mounds. I can't believe that some of these haven't been excavated. Who knows what's in there? Yeah. Massive industrial crane. There's a plane going overhead. There's cars. Delivery drivers. All of modern life. If one of those Romans woke up now, they'd be quite surprised. <laughs> they'd be furious. But no black dogs. No black dogs. Maybe a good thing. Onward. So we're on our way to Jackaleg's grave in Weston. There's Gravely. Which is where the church spire was hit by the devil stroke giant throwing the clod of earth in the wrong direction, making the spire go a bit wobbly. So just looking in the folklore of Hertfordshire by Doris Jones Baker, it goes into the Jack of Legs legend actually. Later in the Middle Ages, Hickerfrith became a Robin Hood figure in Hertfordshire, defending settlements against marauding Danes. There are characteristics of Hickerfrith's exploits in the legend of the best-loved of all Hertfordshire's folk heroes, Jack O'Legs, the Western.
this way. I saw a little sign. Now look, this is beautiful. Isn't this it? is lovely. It's yes. two really beautiful thatched properties. You can hear the pigeons, the wind in the trees. Here we are. Jacko Lake's grave. That's quite big. Unlike Piers Shonk. That's a decent size. That's more what I was expecting. Let's see how many foot lengths. One, two, three, fifteen. Fifteen lengths. It's supposed to be about fourteen foot between the headstone and the footstone. If he's genuinely in there, he's big. He's a big fella. And there it is. Jacker Legs Grave. The legendary giant. Yeah. We don't know what era. Old. But considering this is supposed to be such an important Hertfordshire giant, I was expecting something shonky. You know, nice they've marked it because you'd miss that. There's a big would... wooden sign. Yeah. Very dominant as soon as you come through the gates. Yeah, I thought we'd have to go to the back looking in some shadowy. And there'd be some area. scrawled thing on a worn down stone. But. Can we see if the church is open? Yeah, yeah let's do that. I really hear the wind now in the trees. That looks like a Norman tower. Flint again. Very nice golden cock. Oh, there I used the little golden cock there at the top. The church is open. Stones. So there's the bash nose, the snout, the goofy goggles, the serious king, the dismay oh no, the culprit, the troubled king, and the toothache. Do you have a favourite? At the moment, I think it might be I'm going to be sick. There's a sort of gargoyle there. Yeah. Do you think they're quite old? Well, it says here this church was here in 1087. That's pretty old. That cheeky corporal there. That's a whistle, and I'll come that's to a, you. That's an O whistle, I'll come to you, definitely. There is a special smell of the church, isn't there? There he is. I wonder what it is, really. Dust. Voices from within. Sounds like people above. 
Don't say that. There's nothing about. Can you above. Hear church roof above? Oh. Can you hear? Yeah, I can. Sounds like children's voices and people on the roof. Yeah. We're not going to get free. Maybe. So it's like maybe that's our cue. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of magnificent corbels, actually. They do look old. Yeah, they do. They look quite Chaucerian. Yeah. So we're looking up at the ceiling and there's buttresses, but carved heads and torsos. Quite grotesque, really. There's lots of them. One, two, three, four, 16, even in this area. Should we have a look at the photos of the vicars? We're going back to, oh, 1837. He looks quite spooky. He does, doesn't he? Stephen Thomas Penry, 1894 to 1897. Still a lot of noise going on. Perhaps there's another building attached to them. Let's hope so. Yeah. Otherwise, we've heard ghosts and recorded them. Look, these are very demonic. There's a goat, oh corbel, demonic figure. That is good. Quite devilish figures. Delightful. <laughs> Windswept evening. Yeah. Good. We found it. Finding a grave of a giant is easier than uh, six barrows thrown by a giant. Absolutely. I always hope we'll meet people wandering around that we can talk to who know things about their yeah. local area, because hanging around churches. So far, we haven't lucked out. No. Next time. Yeah. Next time. Folklands was created, written, and presented by Tim Downey and Justin Chubb with music by Justin. Christopher Hadley's book, Hollow Places, An Unusual History of Land and Legend, is published by William Collins and out now. To donate to the Restoration Fund for St Mary's Church Pelham, go to quintetchurches.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.